The Akkad and Coca Report, episode number 60. Welcome to the Akkad and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on this next episode of the Akkad and Coca Report. I'm your co-host, Michelle Akkad, in San Francisco, and joining me from Philadelphia is Anish Coca, as always. Now, regular listeners of the show know that we are not averse to discussing controversial matters. Today, however, I have a feeling that we are tackling the most controversial topic so far, a topic more controversial than the incoherence of evidence-based medicine, more controversial than the falsity of brain death, more controversial than the virtues of a free market in healthcare. What topic could that be? You may have guessed it. We're going to talk about the health benefit of the keto diet. <laughs> and with us to bravely weather the storm of controversy, we are delighted to have as our guest, Dr. Ethan Weiss. Dr. Weiss is, associated, is an associate professor of cardiology at the University of California, San Francisco. He has a stellar academic pedigree, having received his MD degree from Johns Hopkins Medical School, where he also trained as part of his uh, internship and residency. He completed his fellowship in cardiology at UCSF, where he had the misfortune of rubbing elbows with an upstart by the name of Michel Akkad. And uh, he has had a great career as a basic science investigator at UCSF, studying the relationship between heart disease and metabolism. In other words, no one should dare to call into question what Dr. Weiss is about to tell us about the keto diet, although I suspect that that will not stop the passions from running hot anyways. Ethan, welcome to the show. <laughs> thank you, Michelle. And, uh, thank you, Anish, for having me. Great. Any disclaimers you want to start the conversation with? Or <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we shouldn't spend the whole... I mean, I'm happy to talk about this new venture in my life, but but uh, we, we shouldn't... I mean, you we're, can... You... We're not. We're not. I, this is always... You know, this is sort of a clickbait <laughs> to, yeah. get, to get people to listen. We'll talk about, uh, you know, your, your life as a as a young investigator and a lot of all the other interesting things you're doing. But... Well, I will say, you know, young, almost 50. I will say <laughs> that, uh, you know, I've been listening a lot to your guys' podcasts and, and one of the uh, recent topics was on conflict of interest and financial conflict of interest. So I might as well just get that out of the way now that when we do eventually talk about this thing, I am extraordinarily conflicted financially in that I'm a co-founder of this company when we, when we get to that. So let's just dispense with that that's all right but why don't we get to uh, you know why don't dispense with it from the get-go i mean it, it may, i'm generally interested i'm actually you know it was a facetious intro yeah but um you know uh diet is an you know a very important topic it's on everybody's mind whether they're mds or not mds um mds are not necessarily the best person so far have not been the best person to to get any advice from but it's an important question, and I think I'd like to explore it with you and discuss it and, um, and, and see what your thoughts are, and we can speak candidly. And yes, you, you, you have. So tell us a little bit about this company, and then we'll talk more generally about, about metabolism and, and, and that sort of thing. Sure. Well, uh, and we don't have to spend I, a lot of time. Cause, uh, no, cause, it's uh, fine. I mean, maybe we should start by that. You, know, you mentioned this idea that physicians may or may not be the best people to give out diet advice. And I'll say that one of the ways I got here, and there is probably a long path, but one of the sort of key motivators for me was that I felt like when I would see patients downstairs in the office and they'd come to me and they'd say, you know, doctor or Ethan or whatever they were calling me, I really would like to lose some weight. What should I do? And, I, you know, consistently my answer was some form of eat less and exercise more or some combination of that. And and I would say the performance of that intervention was as consistently poor as anything else I've ever done in my entire life. And so it, it occurred to me that we had to do better, or at least I wanted to try to, to do better. So that's kind of how we, I mean, that was the okay. big, big right. reason. Uh, so, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, look, the truth is, Michelle, you know, well, like I've been here in San Francisco for 20 years now, and I came here as a young cardiology fellow and got trained in, in the cath lab by, by the best. Um, we can talk about that later. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, I went off um, and did my science training and started my own lab. And, and back in the day, you probably know this, but others don't. I was working in an area of biology that's very different from what I'm doing now. And that was trying to understand blood clotting and mechanisms and specifically, you know, sex differences in blood clotting. And that was, you know, frankly, more related to, to cardiology, at least at the time than metabolism was. And then I kind of made this change in my life. And we can talk about how and why I got there. 
but but I did have this awakening about five years ago where I realized that like while I loved what I was doing and I was super excited to get to come to work every day and I felt privileged and lucky to do it and I think the people we I you know we, our team was really excited. I often wondered if there were more than 25 or 30 people in the universe who really cared about what we were doing. And and so I started to think a little bit more about impact and, you know, coincident with this idea that the circles, the concentric circles of metabolism and cardiology started to merge. And I realized I was kind of giving people nothing. I I sort of started to think about ways that I could uh, help. That was the right. The sounds good. But let's let's talk about this a little bit. These uh, metabolism yeah. and cardiology merging. Because I mean, on at least uh, superficially, it seems that people have talked about diet and heart disease for for ages, right? And that's yeah. part of the problem. So what what did change, and how did you get in, uh, interested in 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 any shift that may have occurred in the last few years? Yeah, I mean, the truth is, I came to studying metabolism in the lab by accident. You'll, you, you, you know, I, I, we made a knockout mouse. The knockout mouse had a phenotype. The phenotype was that it had a fatty liver. I didn't even know what fatty liver was at that time, and kind of eventually, kind of iteratively, ended up changing the entire focus of my lab. So I was telling people, people would say, "Well, why are you interested in metabolism or diabetes?" And I'd say, "Well, uh, because it's the biggest risk factor for heart attacks, other than smoking cigarettes." But the truth was, that's that's not true. I mean, I, I was. That's very interesting. I, I actually I didn't know that about about how you got into into this. Uh, yeah, this I mean, that was. You know, it's funny. I, I, as an aside, when I was a fellow uh, working with myself, so in my research project, I ended up uh, uh, getting a mouse. You know, it was also a transgenic mouse, or a double yeah. knockout, and, and it 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 was hugely obese. I mean, it was a litter of hugely obese mice, and. Uh, but they they wouldn't breed. <laughs> I was stuck. I couldn't do anything with them. That's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> they, right. Anyways, keep going. So, yeah. So, Ray. So, so Ethan, you were saying, yeah. how did you? So, what what happened? How did you? So, you you, you were working in the the sex difference uh, anticoagulation, and you made a knockout. The knockout was fatty liver. Is and... this like a five hour long podcast or a one hour long no. podcast? <laughs> uh, I'll give you the quick and dirty answer, which was I got fascinated yeah, 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 by uh, by by sex differences that we were seeing in these clotting models in the, in the mouse. And, and then I started to kind of think, well, maybe there are sex differences in the way in clotting in humans. And I got into this, well, maybe women bleed more in the cath lab, you know, all this stuff that I could weave together a story that made sense. And I thought, gosh, this biology of sex differences is fascinating. And so I did a pretty deep dive on that. And it turns out that, that at least in mammals, most, well, let's make, keep this simple. So the liver itself is a phenomenally sexually dimorphic organ, meaning that there are thousands of genes that are expressed hundreds of fold different between males and females. And that that pattern, this signature that you see of liver gene expression is driven by a sexually dimorphic pattern of growth hormone secretion. So that is that the pituitary secretes growth hormone in two distinct patterns in males and females. Males have a more pulsatile pattern where they get big pulses and then long periods where there's none and females have more consistent there's shorter intervals between the between the spikes and so i thought well this is great this is you know the liver is really also where all these clotting factors are made so let's let's explore whether this is actually the mechanism of sex differences in clotting and so the very first paper i published as an independent investigator was describing the sex differences of clotting in mice as related to this growth hormone thing. And so, you know, the next thing you do, as Michelle knows, is you start going and knocking out different genes in the pathway. And so we started knocking out different genes in the pathway. One of them was this, you know, downstream signaling component of this pathway. And we knocked that out and that mouse got this rip roaring fatty liver. And I'll never forget because the technician who worked with me in the lab brought me these livers and he's like, there's something wrong. And he said, I don't even have to genotype these mice. You can see. And I was very naive about this and i remember going to phil ursel who's a pathologist who i think is retired here at ucsf and i showed phil the livers and i said phil what is this and he said ethan i'll look at it under the microscope but i can tell you that's fatty liver and i think we trained in an era where i didn't know what NAFLD or nash or any of these other things were i mean i i heard of that only after i'd finished right. my training for the audience those are the, the acronyms for the clinical condition of fatty liver nash non-alcoholic fatty or steatohepatitis, that sort of thing, right? Right. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So that was sort of my how I got to doing what I was doing in the lab, what I've been doing in the lab for the past 10 years. We got away from keto, though. 
Yeah. So, but yeah. we're 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 going towards it, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, that's we're we are going towards it. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, I mean, if that, that was in the last five, ten years, or you know, five, seven years, I remember. I think four years ago, I read um, uh, Gary Taub's book, uh, "Good Calorie, Bad Calorie." Yeah. which uh, I thought was very fascinating. Uh, I was really thrilled about the way he demolished um, the the standard lipid heart hypothesis, uh, which, you know, in my own little way, I was growing skeptical of. And and then he spends a lot, of, he spent a lot of the book talking about his uh, ideas. And then I, I got lost a little bit and, 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 and so forth. Um, what uh, what pathway did you take regarding? Uh, yeah, how did you how, yeah. how did you get Ethan to? Or, meaning meaning was it? Did you arrive? The, is it because of the work you were doing? Yeah. So the study of the knockout that led you to uh, this interest in diet, or like how, how did you go from being the, the yeah. average cardiologist, which is yeah. I don't know what the heck to tell my patients about uh, diet, to you know having at least some type of formative. Yeah, things that you're now there's a doing. there's a thread and and so what I was doing this metabolism work and obviously it's all very mouse based and again satisfying on a personal level but I was also kind of left wondering what impact it's going to have on the world and a, around four or five years ago I got a phone call from a headhunter to look at a job and I get these calls from time to time and most of the time I just say you know I'm not really interested I'm happy where I am and this one was interesting uh, because it was a technology company that's based here in San Francisco it's called Omada Health and they were basically taking I don't know if you guys remember the old DPP, the Diabetes Prevention Program. They were taking that in, that program and they were trying to operationalize it using technology. It's a company that still exists, and they Just raised a, a lot of money. The, the DPP, the Diabetes Prevention, it's yeah. sort of a stepwise uh, program to get people who have diabetes to to control their diabetes better with, yeah, uh, so the idea with was coaching and whatnot and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, so you take people with pre-diabetes and you do intensive in-person health coaching. And they were de they were delivering this in like YMCA's and churches and stuff like that. And and I and the actual original DPP, which was published in the New England Journal, I think like 2001, 2002, they compared three arms. One was sort of standard of care. One was this intensive health coaching and, and then the other arm was metformin. And, and the result of that, study, at least the initial one that got published in NAGM, was that the health co intensive health coaching was was better at preventing the onset of type 2 diabetes than even metformin and much better than just kind of standard, standard you know, mm -hmm. eat less and exercise more. Right. And so this company was taking the approach of, hey, look, this, you can, it's pretty expensive and not very efficient to deliver this program in, you know, brick and mortar buildings with you know one health coach to 12 people we could do this online with you know one of these things a smartphone and make it like you know 10x more efficient and so that was what they were doing and so i got asked to look at a job there that i obviously did not end up taking but it opened my eyes to the power of technology and it opened my eyes to the to the world of nutrition and and so around the same time i also you know would do consulting from time to time for various people asking me about new drugs coming down the pipeline. And I think all of us are aware that, you know, there was this big splash a few years ago when these new molecules showed up called PCSK9 inhibitors. And I think, you know, if you follow that story, it's probably, in my opinion, the best example, the best story of sort of discovery to market of any drug that I can recall, right? Here was this, you know, molecule that was discovered. It's important in this pathway that we know is important in, in cardiovascular disease. There were human genetic mutations, gain of function, loss of function that were concordant. Um, you know, they were able to, to drug it using this new technology, this antibody, and they could reduce the, the concentration and reduce the cholesterol from, you know, whatever it was, LDL of 100 down to 25 and super powerful. And then they did these two big outcome studies and they were both positive in reducing the combined endpoint. And gosh, what an amazing story. And they're commercial flops, right? No one uses them or, you know, not no one, but very few people use them. So you can get into a long conversation about why that is and whether the companies themselves shot themselves in the foot by, or, you know, pricing them too expensive. But one of the things that occurred to me was that, gosh, we really have a pretty good, uh, you know, closet of tools we can use to treat patients pharmacologically. And so I wonder, I started to wonder, you know, does it make sense economically? Are we going to be able to develop like this? This is as good a story as you can get. And yet the economics don't make sense. So are we going to be able to develop new therapies in this space in these big, I'm not talking about rare diseases or cancer. I'm talking about big 
chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease, metabolism, obesity, diabetes, is it go going to be economically feasible to develop new drugs to target these diseases or do we have to take a different approach? And so I think going and looking at this job at Omada opened my eyes to the possibility that, hey, gosh, we've got all this technology and maybe we can, we can hammer at this other arm of lifestyle interventions that's been ignored largely for, I mean, as long as I can remember. So that was that's, how that's that That's fascinating. Yeah. That's fascinating. Uh, but at the same time, don't you think that people, um, and I'm not necessarily sort of endorsing their approach in one way or another, but that there have been people, you know, lone voices, I guess they would claim that they were lone voices in the wilderness all along, Dean Ornish and other people like that saying, you know, we should do this in this way or that way. And yet now there's a lot more interest, um, I think. Uh, what, what's the difference between the way it was 20 years ago when, um, uh, I forgot his last name, but there, there was another plant-based diet uh, guru. Um, Andy Weil. Uh, Andy Weil, another person, he was actually a heart surgeon. Um, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't yeah. matter. But I mean, there were these guys who yeah. were who were talking about yeah. uh, that sort of approach and who wanted to, you know, who wanted to to spread the gospel. Uh, what what's uh, what's changing now? And you think that is the economics, as you said? I mean, that, that's a very you know interesting uh, perspective that. The magic bullets drug that you can pop, and it's it seems to hard to make you know it seems hard to make an economic economic case for this as you say. I, it's but. for me it's it's two things right. So one is that there's this been this realization, you know we've seen it again we'll see it again as you know think about secondary prevention of MI, right? Which before five or six years ago we had two drugs aspirin and statins to use, and now in the past five or six years we've had we've had you know two different lipid classes, ezetimibe, both the P6, P6K9 inhibitors. We've got two new classes of anti of diabetes drugs. We have rivaroxaban that was published for a secondary prevention, you know, thing. We have canakinumab, this, you know, IL, you know, IL, whatever it is, IL-1, IL-12, I can't even remember. And, you know, most recently we have this reduced trial, right? There's the Vasipa, which is this fish oil trial. So, you know, hordes of these new opportunities. So how do you, as a physician sitting in the office, how do you decide which one of these things to give to which patient and there is going to be a difficulty in sort of you can't give them all uh, you're not going to want to give them all and i think also patients are wanting to take control of their health more than and i think i find at least in our area that there's more skepticism for taking drugs so i think there was that going on and then to me the real the, the real reason that this has gotten more traction in the past few years and why you know dean ornish and all these other people while i think they made uh, splash within the community was at that time, what they were selling was a program, you know, you could buy their book and maybe buy something else on their website to help facilitate it. But, but there wasn't something that could, that could scale it, I think, in my opinion. And, and that to me is the difference. And that was what I learned in, in looking at this Amada position was the technology that everybody's connected to a cell phone, the whole world, everyone has one. And if you could somehow figure out a way to use that to deliver these therapies, that that would change the entire game. Um, that, that's interesting. How, how so? How important do you think those uh, technologies are to delivering new ways of eating or new ways of behaving, uh, and and that sort of thing? And one one point, one last one I want to make here yeah. before before we you answer that question is that uh, yes, you're absolutely right, and and also the distinction between the, the drugs and and changing your your behavior, your diet is that the drugs will make the numbers look better, but nobody really believes that they make you healthier, right? In and of themselves. You don't, you don't, uh, you don't become the, healthier from a PCSK9 and, and that sort of thing. Whereas with the I, diet, it is possible. Go ahead. Sorry. I don't know if I agree with you about that, but I will tell you this, that you don't get joy. Like there, there, there are very few people who will come to you to say, you've improved my life so dramatically by putting me on this P6K9 inhibitor. Everything is different. <laughs> Whereas like somebody who comes in your office after losing 25 pounds because of something that you help them do, that's an incredibly satisfying experience for them. So I do think that, um, you know, maybe, I don't know, feel better is the wrong thing because we're trying to prevent the onset of these diseases that are really silent until they're not. But uh, but I do think that you're not... No, I mean, so, so I'm sorry. I, I, let me clarify. Yeah. They will actually decrease the event rates of, of certain yeah. conditions. They, they will... No, I, so... Yes, they will do that, but that won't make people feel that they're healthier just because yeah. 
their event race is lower, right? True. So, I think that's so, one of the big so, obstacles to, for, for taking. I mean, I think we all have patients who don't want to take some of these therapies that we recommend. And, and I think one of the big obstacles is they don't feel better. If anything, all they, they might feel worse. And so that's hard, right? You tell them, well, here's this event that you may or may not have in 25 or 30 years. So take this expensive pill or better yet, inject yourself with this expensive medicine once every two weeks. And it's going to cost you X number of hundred dollars a month. And oh, by the way, I can't even tell you if it's going to necessarily work. So that, I, I do think that right. there is, um, you can understand why people don't love that. Sure, but, sure. Yeah. But Ethan, Ethan, yeah. so I'm I'm interested in this last this last step that you're titillating me with. Like, I mean, you're you're yeah. a you're a UCSF basic science mm. uh, researcher. You're also a clinical cardiologist, of course. Um, I'm curious to know how it is you. I've been following you on Twitter now for. Uh, many years, and clearly over, over time, it seemed that you've become friendlier and friendlier to a certain type of diet, and that yeah. diet being, you know, yeah. a low carb, high protein, you know, however you want to call it, LCHF or keto uh, diet. But I, I'm interested in your being turned on to that. How, how, how did you come yeah. at it? Okay, let me connect the dots for you. So yes. I told you I looked at this job at Omada. It turns out yes. I met this guy who was at Omada at the time, and he left Omada and went to work at this other company, this other startup company, He also based here in San Francisco. And so he calls me one afternoon and says, we should have lunch. I said, fine. So we go, no, we have lunch. And he says, listen, I'm working at this new company and it's kind of similar in some ways to what Omada was doing, but they have a different intervention. The nutrition is different. They're, they're delivering this thing called the ketogenic diet. And you know, I had remembered that. I, I went to medical school at Hopkins and John Freeman, who's a, who was a neurologist, I think he, he died a few years ago, was I think the the one who brought that back to use to treat children with epilepsy, um, which I've learned is an incredibly powerful tool. And so I remembered the word and I vaguely remembered, you know, I remembered the whole Adkins craze. And um, so I said, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, I'll learn more. And so kind of in parallel, I did a deep dive on kind of what I could find. And then he introduced me to an investor. I think he was the main investor for this company called VertiHealth. And he and I had a great talk and he said to me, Ethan, you're not going to believe these data. He says, I'm, I'm biased, of course, because I've invested in this company and I stand to make a lot of money. But I think the results are as powerful as anything we've seen for weight loss or you know, management of diabetes short of bariatric surgery. And I had definitely begun to appreciate that in the right patient, bariatric surgery is an incredibly powerful intervention. It happens to be a difficult, morbid you know, operation that is not going to we cannot apply to the 80 million people who are overweight or obese in this country, right? There's no way we can do that. So I was curious. And so, you know, I went and read everything I could read. I found the first publication that I could find from the ketogenic diet was published in like 1797 by a surgeon. And so over this process, I got to know this company. They eventually asked me to join their advisory board. And I've done that for two years, and so actually, was, t tell me about that yeah. that paper because I always love the historical angle. Yeah, what did that guy in in the seven in the eighteen you know eighteenth century what did, <laughs> what was he treating? Well, these uh, guys are so, or what, uh... it was diabetes. So, and of course, back then okay. they didn't define diabetes as we do today. It wasn't like type right. one, type two. It was just sure. sugar, and the really the the way they diagnosed it was tasting their patient's urine, which is sort of you know humorous. You can't really imagine anything like that happening today. Um, but he, you know, physicians were forced to be much more creative back then because of course they didn't have, you know, drugs or devices or, or operations to offer people. And so there were a group of physicians who understood that there was a, you know, power in nutrition and they could figure out ways to modulate people's health using nutrition. Now, it, if you read this and I'll send it to you, you can put it in the show notes, but if you read this description of what they're feeding these people. It was it was revolting. I mean, it was just, it was absolutely disgusting. But he went through this like incredibly rigorous, careful diary of these you know handful of patients. Right? This is not like a five thousand you know RCT you know trial. This was like four people, and he admitted them to the hospital and basically fed them this you know awful stuff. And he was what testing was it, all, your all urine. Meats or, I mean, when you say it awful, was almost the, all meat, but it was worse than that. It was like liver, blood, liver, yeah. animal liver. No, right. but it was like blood curdled, like, and like intestine, or like, it was just <laughs> like really, really nasty. Um, but he described like curing, or not curing, but at least, you know, reversing their diabetes, for lack of a better word, you know, that they stopped having sugar in their urine and that they lost a lot of weight and that they, you know, didn't have 
you know, acetone on their breath or all the other things that they, that, right. Uh, right. that you know, were man that manifest their diabetes. So that was fun to go back. And you could see that sort of trail go all the way through the 19th century. There was an Italian, I think his name was like Cantani or something. And he had a diet. He was like the prototype, you know, predecessor to all these modern diet doctors, right? It was the Cantani diet. And it was basically, you know, a low carb, high fat diet. You know, they realized if you just restrict all these carbohydrates that you could make people's diabetes get better. So this was not a new thing. It just happened to go away, coincident with the discovery of insulin, right? I mean, when insulin came to the market or came to was discovered in the early 20th century, there was really no reason people felt like they needed to explore these other interventions anymore because they'd cured diabetes with insulin. At least right. that's my read of it, of what happened. Uh, so it wasn't until like the 1970s when people like Adkins and other people rediscovered these different interventions that this whole thing got going again. So just for clarity, um, uh, fasting or no fasting, or how does that play in? Did in the 19th century, did they advocate fasting as well as a low carb diet or? Well, there are publications of prolonged fasts going back into the 19th century. And then of course, into the 20th century with, you know, with the famous studies that were done, you know, in Boston, um, you know, where they would fast people for hundreds of days mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, we don't have to go into that, but as far as I know, there weren't, they weren't done together. So I don't think there was a, you know, low carb, high fat diet and intermittent fasting okay. thing, or right. like there wasn't, okay. there was, I don't think, I never, at least I haven't found any papers describing the use of both of them concurrently. Okay. So that, that's more recent sort of this, this, uh, idea of combining those two, putting you on a low, low carb diet. So, uh, well, define for us what, what is, I mean, is there a standard, I mean, do people, when they say, if we're going to use the term, the keto diet, do people... Uh, is there a standard understanding or a common understanding of what that means? Yeah, I, I get asked this question a lot. The way I would de define it is, so there are two ways to define it, right? There's a threshold of carbohydrate intake that, and it, that you would have during the day. Um, and mostly people think it's in the range of 20 to 30 grams of carbohydrates per day or less. And, and that's one way to define it. But really, to me, the way to define the, a ketogenic diet, if you're really going to take it at face value, is a diet that promotes your liver, tells your liver to start making these ketone bodies. And, um, and Steve Finney, who's the, you know, scientific co-founder, chief medical officer at Verta Health, who really took over as the godfather of this ketogenic diet, he defines it as having a concentration of beta hydroxybutyrate, which is the sort of most common ketone body of 0.5 millimolar or greater in your blood. Okay. Um, I think that's a relatively arbitrary number but in that range you know when you're when you're making because we all have some ketones at different points of time between meals um and i think it's fascinating to think about how ketones came to be and why we evolved to have them i mean it's a it's an interesting that's a whole different conversation but uh, right yeah. and, and somebody for uh, not just the, the the audience but just for me you know who's not versed in that uh, literature that means that fats are being used for as fuel and, and yeah. being broken down okay so yeah, i mean so, if you so think about the the way that most animals including you know we humans existed before refrigerators or you know preservatives right we ate when we had food and you know if you look at a an animal in the wild it's not eating three meals a day and like having a little bag of like smart food at for a snack right it doesn't it eats when they ha when they when there's food, so there has to be a way to maintain this you know glucose level of roughly 100 you know milligrams per deciliter throughout the day, and and the body and the way we the mechanism we evolved was that we carry around this energy source in our fat and fat you know I tell people fat serves two purposes one is it's insulative so it keeps us you know from freezing to death, but it also is this sort of reserve fuel supply and I'm fascinated you know fascinated fascinated with adipose tissue biology it's kind of what we're thinking about now in the lab all day long. But really what happens is if you don't have enough calories or don't have enough glucose, that your brain particularly, but other organs as well, need, can't process certain, uh, th really it's the only molecule they can use to process other than this ketone body with, or set of ketone bodies. So the way, what happens is that you basically mobilize all this fat in this process we call lipolysis. So that's taking a triglyceride and cleaving it into its components, which are fatty acids and glycerol. And then those go to the liver. And in the liver, they get converted through a series of chemical reactions to a molecule called uh, acetoacetate. And that is sort of the, the parent of the ketone bodies. And then uh, the, that gets broken down into 
the other ones, beta-hydroxybutyrate and, and acetone. But all of those molecules are used um, as fuel by certain tissues, at, mostly at during starvation. But but you can trick your body into kind of feeling like it's starved or thinking that it's starved by restricting carbohydrate intake. That's kind of the easiest way I can explain okay, it. Okay, so that's fine. So without necessarily the need to fast or... That's or right. are there different schools? I mean, you get so much bang for the buck by just reducing carbs, and then if you want more, then then you introduce the fasting. Would that be sort of a a way of uh, describing it? Or so this keto thing. I think if you ask people what the benefits are of, of keto uh, as a nutritional intervention, you'll hear a bunch of different things. One of the things, one of the things that you hear, and and I have to say that anecdotally, it's been very true for me as I've been doing this diet for the last ten months, is that you're just less hungry. And so I think one principle that I've learned over the past couple of years is that we as, as kids are conditioned to eat at times, even when we're not hungry, right? I mean, you know, we're, we have this like sense of, oh, well, there's a schedule you have to adhere to. And I think even when you have, bring home your baby for the first time, like there's this paranoia over they're not getting enough nutrition. And so we condition our children to eat all the time. And, and so then they have this like, sense that if they're not eating, they're hungry. But the truth is like, why would you eat if you're not hungry? And, and, and it occurred to me like a couple of years ago that that was something that I wanted to think about and push back on. And for me and others, when you're doing this keto diet, you're just less hungry. So I, I do eat less during the day. And I think that may be one of the main mechanisms for weight loss is that I'm just not eating as much. Right. So it sounds like a, I mean, it's a plausible story, right? The whole keto pathway uh, story sounds very plausible. Um, at the same time, there's not a, a, you know, a widespread acceptance of it, or, I mean, it's, it still is controversial and you still, is that, I mean, even well, among, but, but, among people who are, you know, reasonably well-versed with the, the science, uh, uh, can you speak to that also? I mean, do, do people say, uh, I mean, is, there are people it, who, is it the case, is it the case, Ethan, that, that, that one would recommend this over other types of yeah. limited caloric intakes? A I mean, great question. So let me tell you this. And I think, you know, what, as the three of us both spend more time than we ought to on Twitter, I think you're, we're all probably aware that there, um, there are multiple religious wars going on out there in our world. And one of the most, and uh, Michelle, you, address this in the intro kind of facetiously, but one of the most passionate of these wars is this nutrition diet war. And um, there are people, I think we know them who have, uh, you know, represent their nutritional passion by putting a symbol for a plant or a piece of meat in their, in their, in their name on, on Twitter. And I think that speaks to how much people care about this stuff. But, um, but one of the big arguments is sort of what is the, is there a potential benefit? Is there a benefit? So Gary Taubes would say that, uh, that there's a metabolic advantage to eating this keto diet and that that advantage is is an optimization of energy expenditure where you're going to basically spend more energy than you're taking in and that if you do that, obviously you're going to lose weight. And there are uh, lots of people yelling very loudly about whether that's the case. Um, so I think that's one controversy is, is there an, a metabolic advantage? In other words, do you, do you burn more energy on a per calorie basis if you eat this way rather than eating, you know, a normal standard American diet. The other question that comes up a lot is, is that question about, about appetite. And the truth is that like these things have not been um, studied, at least to my satisfaction adequately for me to be able to weigh in, in a thoughtful way. The one thing that sort of brought me here, the, I would say the thing that brought me here more than any of these other things was uh, the one thing, the keto diet or the, eating this way has that the, no other diet that I know of does have is the ability to follow, follow this biomarker. And so I have become fascinated by behavior and behavioral economics and behavioral science over the past two years. And one of the things that occurred to me was if you take, if you look, step back and say, well, why are we doing so poorly, you know, as a country or as a world in helping people battle this obesity epidemic? One answer, potential answer is that we're just not giving them the information that they need. And you know, the, the story I tell is like, if you go and eat a quart of ice cream tonight, you go downstairs and eat a quart of ice cream. If you step on the scale tomorrow morning, you, you may not know, you probably wouldn't even notice a difference. If anything, you might lose weight, who knows? But it's not a very useful metric that is weight. 
Whereas this diet has this metric that you can follow a biomarker. And what we have found, and the reason that we ended up kind of down this path was that it, we made the hypothesis that that it would be a powerful behavioral hook, give people the information that they could use to stay adherent to this program, distract them from the thing that everyone pays attention to, attention to which is their weight. And that maybe because it's restrictive, maybe because they're eating less, maybe because they're less hungry, maybe because they're born burning more calories at rest, who knows. But if you adhere to this diet and you know get distracted from this other thing, you end up losing weight. And that and that was the sort of hypothesis for how we got okay. to where and we that, are. That's the, that's the venture that you're, you, you mentioned yeah. at the beginning of the show where now you have a device that that you've helped design that can actually measure ketones. Is that right? Or yeah. uh, in a, it's uh, very easily with from from the breath or or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So how does it how does it work? Is it, what does it look like? And uh, uh, look, I don't know. You're I don't know how many. Well, too bad for the people who uh, are we can, not. We can describe it, uh, right? But so. it looks like actually it looks like a vape. Um, we're told by that uh, by a lot of people that it looks like a vape. Um, and the truth is, like, we didn't design this. Uh, the story of how this device came to the market is that um, I was introduced to my co-founders. Um, so I'm not going to bore you with all the long story, but but my co-founders and I decided that this was something that we wanted to try to do. And we wanted to try to do, to do it quickly. Um, I, I'm, I'm fascinated and impressed by how fast things move outside of academia. Uh, it, it's been shocking <laughs> to me to see the pace uh, you know, we really kind of decided casually that we were going to do this in July and kind of formally in September. Right. And we have this device behind me somewhere. There's like 10,000 of these things that we're going to ship out in the next week. So that's just unbelievable. I mean, I, I can't get, you know, a piece of paper written and Xeroxed in academia in less than two months. So, um, but one of the sacrifices we made in, in, in trying to optimize for speed was that we had to, uh, take a device that was already being used for something else. And so uh, long story short was that one of my co-founders has relatives in Taiwan and one of his relatives there is in the manufacturing and engineering world. And he knew these people who were making a, uh, a consumer alcohol breathalyzer, which is you know used a fair amount. You can buy them on Amazon and stuff. People use them to, to judge whether or not they should try, get behind the wheel after they've had a couple of drinks. And I guess this is becoming a bigger thing in Asia. So these guys were making... Um, this device and so it pairs with your with your smartphone and you blow into the thing and it tells you you know yes or no don't get behind the wheel and actually that the shell of that is this and um, we, what we were able to do was to take the sensor that they had in this inside this device and swap the alcohol one out for one that was more sensitive for acetone and acetone is the sort of this volatile organic compound small little thing um, that ends up in your breath and it's one of the ketone bodies and so we were able to kind of make this kind of almost That's great. And yeah, it, it was a pretty is, is it, um, um, do you get a, a quantity or do you get a yay or nay? Or is it a, uh, what kind of answer do you get? Do you get a number? Yeah. So we get, we get uh, a number that it's, you know, calibrated. And so we're able to measure it in parts per million, which is sort of the standard way that you measure acetone um, gas. The truth is that we, for two reasons, one is we didn't want, uh, um, I guess we were a little uncomfortable reporting in parts per million because we, we wanted to um, avoid people getting too fixated on, you know, it's like when they started reporting creatinine in, in the hundredths, like, is it really important to know the difference between 1.4 and 1.485? Um, maybe to somebody, but to me it wasn't, and it was sort of a distraction. So we made the, uh, made the decision for that reason and uh, and really because we were trying to optimize this for as a behavioral tool, we made the decision to report it in levels. And so you start off at level one or two, and then you go up and up to level eight. And so we that's how we that's the num that's what you'll get when you blow into this thing. Uh, okay. Your smartphone. What's a, and what's you. a good what's a good level, or what level should you be under? Or well, I mean, the idea is that you start off in the in the low range, right, one or two, and then if you adhere to this diet, and if you do it right, you know, as we tell you to do it within one to two days three at most you'll start to see this level go up and and it's pretty fascinating to watch how people become uh, the game the word we've been using is gamified that they become I mean, people are naturally extraordinarily competitive and and they want us they like to win and they, they want their scores to go up and so um it's sure. a powerful thing 
Uh, so I, there's no there's no question. Now, do you measure uh, one time a day at a s standard spe specified time of the day, like in the morning yeah. when you wake up, or, or no? So if you go back and uh, like, there were papers in the 1920s describing the three common methods of measuring ketones in in people, and that was blood, you know, beta hydroxybutyrate, breath, acetone, and, and urine. You can measure ketones in the urine, and if you look, you know, in the community of people out there doing ketogenic diet now, um, before our device came to market the vast majority would do the urine, they'd pee on these strips. And that, that is, you know, it's not the most, uh, well, people don't like urine. And so there's a reason, you know, that's sort of not as attractive. It's also probably not super uh, accurate. They report it as like low, medium, high or something, or maybe it's like four different levels. And then there's the blood. And for people who don't mind pricking their finger, um, they do that. But those, those are expensive. You, you know, each strip is a dollar or two. And, um, and so there's a, there was this sort of idea that, gosh, there could be a better way, easier way to do this and it would be cheaper. And so um, what we tell people is do it a few times a day, do it first thing in the morning, do it once in the middle of the day and do it before you have your first drink uh, because the sensor will be contaminated by ethanol. But but the truth is that at the beginning, at least people people measure a lot more than that because they become sort of- Right, so uh, this is hooked game. into a smartphone or this is just, it gives you a number on yeah. the device? No, good. Yeah, so it's paired with a smartphone. And the smartphone basically gives you, um, it gives you the program. So it gives you advice about what to eat. So if you ask people sort of who've tried the ketogenic diet, why why did you stop, or what was the hardest part about it? You get three answers. One is I didn't know how I was doing, meaning like I couldn't measure my ketone level, or I didn't want to prick my finger, or I didn't want to pee on myself. So that was number one. Number two is I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to eat. So I don't what does 25 grams of carbohydrate mean? So we've built this, you know, food database where you can search, you can put in Fuji Apple, it'll tell you it has 25 grams of carbohydrate or something like that. And you can put in any food you want. And we give people kind of meal plans and other things that help give them sort of a, a, a guide for how to do this. Um, and then the other thing that we have in this is in this app, because we've sort of stumbled onto this idea that there's this game that people want to play is we we've made like leaderboards and so we've taken advantage of sort of the what's been happening you know across silicon valley um for the past 10 or 15 years which is that people you know like it's like getting a like on twitter or whatever it is people like that they're they they like they like to compete um and then within that we also have built in social support so so it's a little bit like the strata of dieting i mean you, you it just, is yeah right it's like strava, strava exactly sorry yeah, yeah, strava, yeah. yeah it is that's great well give us the name you haven't given us the name of that uh, oh sorry it's a very yeah. ingenious name it's called keto but it's spelled with a y so it's k-e-y-t-o <laughs> okay. and it, we were intentionally um we were drawn to the double entendre uh, in some ways because you can call it the key to whatever you want sure, to. Sure, sure. I, I think it's, um, it's 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 cute and, and clever and, and it's great. Yeah. And, and so and you and so you buy you, it's how much is it? Uh, yeah. Well, we pre-sold these devices on uh, these this crowdfunding platform. I'd, I'd never even heard. Of, I mean, I think I'd heard of Kickstarter, but I didn't understand that there are a bunch of these platforms. We chose Indiegogo, and we sold the device. I think as of tomorrow for $99. So you get the device and, and the app then comes for free. Honestly, we haven't landed on what the business model going forward is going to be. And we've toyed around a bunch of different ideas, whether we you know, sell the device for cheaper and we have some subscription or whether, you know, th there are all kinds of ways to, to build this business. And I try and kind of concentrate on the things that I know and let the business people handle the business. And um, how, uh, how, and how often, how long does this device last or? Uh, well, we don't know. I mean, the, the, the alcohol, the guys in Taiwan who, you know, make this for us say that their alcohol sensor lasted, you know, through three or 4,000 um, uses, which is sort of well over a year for an average user. So uh, we anticipate that people will break them after, you know, we, I'm, I'm guessing a year would be my, would be my guess if I had to. Um, I mean, I've been carrying this one around in my pocket since early November and I mean, literally just like right in my pocket and it, it works great. So, you know, that, that's, <laughs> that's really very exciting. And, and it really, uh, uh, indeed a, cha a change of pace from, uh, uh, academia. Now it's, it's a metric and it's about, so it's a sort of a, a, a biofeedback, if you will. Right. I mean, in, in the broad sense of the, of the term, 
And and we all know that not all metrics uh, work the same or work or whatnot. Right. I mean, we, you know, we've bashed a lot of the metrics. You know how how doctors are being uh, you know metrified and and given feedback to to change the, their behaviors and how much backlash there's been against that. Yeah. I can't imagine that would be the case here. There are also metrics that are absolutely um, indispensable. I mean, I'm thinking about like. Uh, the fetal heartbeat, right? Fetal heart monitors in delivery, right? It's, I mean, it's just a, an incredibly uh, uh, no, powerful metric. So, so I, I, but this I is this is ahead. different. Yeah, this is different because it's it's not it's not it's I mean, voluntary. We, it's, uh, it's yeah, it's, and it's, not, it. it's and, not it's not top down. It's it's, it's bottom right. up. But and, um, and for me, again, the principle was that you're replacing a bad metric, which is weight. Right. Like I love the like we could talk about metrics all day long, but like for me, the 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 core of the metric conversation really it's most interesting to me when you talk about baseball because for years you know if you evaluate the quality of a baseball pitcher you do that based on like it the pitcher's win-loss record and right. it wasn't until like recently the last five or ten years that people have realized that that's a terrible way to evaluate quality of a pitcher because pitcher can't control like his defense or how many runs they score or the park they play in and so i think weight is that like version of the one loss record like it's a terrible metric if you want to lose weight ironically I, I'll still pick uh, Clint Eastwood over uh, Moneyball. Yeah. <laughs> you know that movie. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. Um, so that's 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 great. The do you um, uh, do you think that um, that that this will? Uh, I mean, in terms of what the, the type of reception that you've that you've received. Uh, do you see widespread acceptance from the medical community? Do you think that the FDA should be stepping in to uh, uh, make a uh, remark about efficacy here? Or, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, those are two good questions. Let me tackle them one at a time. I'll start with the FDA thing. So this is not marketed as a medical device. We've actually gotten some calls and emails from people about using it as a medical device. And the two most common of those calls come from parents of kids with seizures and come from parents or people with type 1 diabetes. And while we're totally moved and would love to explore this, we've made the, the very, very specific decision not to make this a medical device. So it, it is a consumer wellness product or whatever the actual technical term is. So it's not regulated. Um, so, so the FDA really should have no interest in what we do uh, because we're not making claims. Um, so why, so why, why did you choose not to uh, get the medical indication? Well, I mean, because... I mean, frankly, it was just a business decision, right? I mean, if you, you uh, ten years, uh, you, yeah. you spent ten years. I mean, exactly. We want to, you know, have to spend all. That. I mean, there is a play out there, and a lot of companies have done this. In fact, companies that are similar to us have done this, where you go out and you build this evidence basis that you know basically is going to satisfy the regulators and the payers, and then you have to go out and sell the product. So we took the other approach, was maybe people want to buy the product, and then like if there's a rationale for us to do trials down the road, then we can do those but we're not we did it the other way around so this is and this is the exact concern that you know michelle has to uh, a huge degree i have i have to to some degree as well that that the current framework that we that exists you know we're talking about the economics yeah. of yeah creating pcsk9s and stuff that the current model that exists in terms of getting uh, innovative products innovative therapies innovative drugs to patients who need them is so utterly complex and crazy and puts in tons and tons of costs and time that make make a lot of things untenable, and we'll never know the actual cost of devices and drugs that don't actually uh, uh, co come to be because of the regulatory framework that we have now. So it's super interesting. <laughs> that, yeah, that I, I go further because not only that, but I mean, and I'm not saying that to to butter you up or or you know for, for your product, uh, um, Ethan, but it, it's it's very conceivable that if if this works. You're gonna say, I mean, it could save lives, right? Because I mean, we know that people died from being overweight and having diabetes and right. so forth, right? So, so this could be a life-saving. Just it can make the same claim about being a life-saving as any other thing that goes through the FDA, right? And 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 yet, if you had to go through the FDA, you could, you know, I mean, you'd spend ten years and thousands of people might die, right? I, I mean, it's. If people, you, you can make the argument that way. So, so I think you know, good for you for going that route. Um, you're gonna, you know, live and die by. The, you should live and die by by the patients, right? By 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 the people, you know, whether they they find it useful or not. And um, and so I, I think it's perfectly. Um, uh, well, is it, it, it's the right way to go. And and 
Go ahead. Ethan, take the other question about uh, what, what has been your uh, uh, reception? What has been the reception from the uh, medical community? All right, I promise I'm going to get that, but let me just quickly address. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Sorry, sorry. Which is, I think, uh, you know, there is a tension, and and I'm keenly aware of it because I think you know you can look at these unregulated industries, and I think the best one of the best example I can think of is the supplement in- industry. Right? I mean, you know, supplements are like the best business. I mean, if you look at margins and stuff, I mean, it's if you want to make money, just find, go make supplements because they're unregulated. And so we don't want to be that. And so there is some in between, right? And and obviously we we chose a path that you know we're making what we're considering to be a consumer, you know, health and wellness device, and that consumers are going to make the choice whether they want to use it. And we're going to live or die based on on performance performance in the marketplace. Um, it doesn't mean that we wouldn't in the future go down the path of developing a more medical type device, and but. But at the beginning, we chose to go that way. But I have to. But I do want to acknowledge that it's not 100% clean. That there is some um, that you can. There is a fine line right between being a you know snake oil salesman and and going through this sort of regular FDA path. Um, so I think you know to answer your question, Anish. The other question, um, I've been comforted by a couple of things. One was I came to this with a ton of skepticism, and a lot of that the fears were were probably you know the product of having grown up in a in the household where I ha- have a father who's a cardiologist and I think you know most of us having grown up in the 70s and 80s kind of were trained that that fat is is bad and I, I we had no fat anywhere in our house I mean we had you know skim milk and egg beaters and you know never any cheese or anything because because my dad you know as a cardiologist trained in the 70s kind of came up in this environment that fat is evil so i think um there um there was i did come to this with skepticism and a lot of that was allayed over the years by learning and following and watching and then a lot of it was allayed by by seeing publications from this you know from other companies like this company verto that i've been advising and and i think it's pretty clear that that not this diet is not for everybody no diet is for everybody but i convinced myself that it was at baseline safe and so that if you start with the idea look just like a diabetes drug and the fda had a had a benchmark that you know back after the whole debacle with the ppr gamma drugs the tzds uh if you're going to develop a type 2 diabetes drug you had to prove that it didn't kill people it didn't have to reduce cardiovascular events. It just had to not kill people. It now had had to not cause heart attacks, and then it had to reduce hemoglobin A1C. So I came at it with, well, let's just if this thing is actually doing what it looks like it's doing to help people with their metabolic health, losing weight, improving their, you know, insulin glucose homeostasis. But as as long as it's not doesn't appear to be causing harm from a cardiovascular standpoint then I'm going to be comfortable. Now, this gets into a huge conversation that you and the three of us could spend hours talking about, which is how do you define, you know, cardiovascular risk and which of these markers matters and, and how do you put them right. all together? And, and and I don't want to get too distracted by that, but I did convince myself by looking at the markers that there was at least on a population level, um, the absence of a really potent signal of harm. I just want to ask you one question, actually, out of self-interest, because I have yeah. a couple of patients who who have gone to me, uh, who have come to me uh, after being on the keto diet and then who saw their their lipids really go up. Yeah. And it's not true of all of them. I think, in fact, probably for the majority, the lipids either don't change or get better yeah. as they lose weight and so forth. But there seems to be a subset. And, and I think that's also recognized in, in the field it that is. people people yeah. know that there's a subset of people whose lipids go up. Yeah. And, and, and the answer is that we don't know if that's bad or good, right? I mean, at the end of the day. We don't. And so I tell people that you have four. So I I tell people you have four choices when it comes to, let's say you're, and and by the way, you described it perfectly. There's a subset. We do not know what that, how big that subset is. Some people say 15, 20, 25, 30% of people when they go on the standard ketogenic diet, that they have an increase in what looks like bad lipids, right? LDL cholesterol, ApoB, LDL particles, small dense, you know, whatever you choose, whichever metric. And uh, so you have four choices. One choice is to ignore it. And there is a group of people out there who are very skeptical of the role of lipids in cardiovascular disease and advocate that you can ignore it. There's a sort of less severe position, which is ignore it, but get a calcium scan. Mm -hmm. And if your calcium scan is okay, you can really ignore it. And I have to say like that strategy to me and the right person maybe is not horrible so that's option one 
Option two is you can say, well, I'm going to stop this diet. I'm going to eat a plant-based diet or eat something else. Option three is you can say, all right, well, maybe it looks like a lot of this is being driven, these ab abnormal bad effects on cholesterol. Maybe, maybe that's being driven not so much by the total fat that you're eating, but by that subset of saturated fat. And so what you could do is to say, well, I'm going to change the ratio of saturated fat to monounsaturated fat. So in other words, replace the pork and the beef and the bacon, maybe not entirely, but to at least some degree with, with olive oil and olives and, you know, guacamole. nuts. And, yeah. yeah. Guacamole, avocados. Um, and then the last option is, well, if you like the diet and you feel good on it, you've lost weight and it's your diabetes or whatever it is, is better. And your, your lipids are out of whack and it makes you nervous. You can go on a statin or you can take Zetia or you can take a PCSK9 inhibitor. So I, I give, I think there are four ways to deal with this. And, and I've seen a bunch of different people do it. What I am not uh, absolutely not advocating is that we just sort of throw out the LDL hypothesis and say, I, I agree with you. I don't. So I think in the, you know, with, with the first option of sort of uh, getting a calcium scan and seeing, uh, I think you can use it to monitor. You don't have to just do it one time. Right. right. So you, you can you can do that and sort of monitor over time. That's what people if, do. If you see a, a, yeah. a signal, then, then that's uh, a hard argument. That is a hard argument to to refute. Uh, I mean, uh, of course, we don't have data, right? We have no outcomes and we're all operating in this sort of like glorified guessing game. But but it's hard to uh, to refute that if you have a calcium score of zero and you're a 60 year old man, you've been eating nothing but beef for 15 years and you like it. Right. I don't know. You know, sure. I have a I have a, a patient with uh, uh, type two diabetes, who's uh, in his sixties, who's overweight, two hundred and thirty pounds, and uh, whose calcium score is <laughs> it is actually bizarre. You know, five years ago it was two, and now it's zero. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now he's on a statin, but he's he's sort of uh, chomping at the bit trying to get off of a statin, and that's actually part of the reason why I I. Uh, I relented and, and agreed to repeat the, the calcium scan. Have you guys seen this as an aside? I don't want to get distracted, but I just recently had a patient who got a calcium scan and they reported it as having microcalcifications. Have you, have you seen the calcium score was zero, but it was reported as having microcalcifications. I, I, I've so seen, I've seen, I've had radiologists report calcification yeah. that's below the, the level of detection of the, uh, yeah. the algorithm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've, I've had a score of 0 0.5, actually, huh. a score of wow. yeah. So Ethan, just, just, yeah. just to clarify, I know you've, mentioned, you've touched on it a number of times over our last uh, hour, but what, what potential downsides do you see for being on a high-protein diet? Oh, so let me this clarify. It's not high-protein. It's moderate protein. So that, this is okay. one of the key and important points is if you eat high-protein. So if you think of nutrition, so macronutrients, right, the three things yeah. that we put in our bodies, fats, protein, and carbohydrates. If you if you think of that, it's one of the rare instances in life where there is true zero sumness, right? So if you reduce your intake of carbohydrates, if you're going to eat the same number of calories per day, you got to replace those calories with something else. So you do not replace them with protein. You keep protein intake moderate the same. It's about 30%. Typical American diet. Um, you have to replace the carbohydrates with fat. And so what are the risks? Well, we don't know. I mean, the, what, the truth is my sort of pat answer is we don't have any idea what the risks or benefits are of any nutritional intervention in a way that would satisfy the evidence-based medicine crowd because we just don't have any, I mean, short of Predimed, which, you know, was basically at least what I'm told, you know, kind of half, I don't know, made up is too strong of a word, but has a problem. There just are no RCTs where you you know, randomize people to X, Y, or Z nutrition and follow them over years and then measure the effect on me clinically meaningful heart outcomes. So until we have those, we have to make uh, guesses, right? This, this, is, uh, this is where we're left. I don't know, I don't know Ethan, it looks like uh, very likely you're gonna end up in uh, Vinay's next book, Medical Reversal. I, I, yeah, which way, positive or negative? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, don't, you know, operating without yeah. RCTs make, makes the chances of reversal very high. Yeah, well, the thing is, like, this is one of the things, like, in nutrition, you can say that for a drug or for a device, right, where I know, I know. there was a, a zero point. But for nutrition, we all have been eating something forever. So yeah. there, there is, what is baseline? What do you consider to be gold standard or what is, yeah. Anyway, I think, um, I think you know, one of the risks is is undoubtedly, you know, I'm uncomfortable if somebody comes to me and says, my LDL cholesterol before I started doing this was 110, and now it's 195. As 
maybe someday I'll change my mind on this, but today at least I'm uncomfortable with that. So uh, I would I would be comfortable monitoring it like we just described with the calcium scan. Other things, you know, I described the four different things that I would do, but that to me is a risk. I think that people should should have their cholesterol checked anytime they make any nutrition, big nutrition change, but particularly this one, because I do consider that to be a risk. There are other biologically plausible risks that I think are unexplored, but there are changes in other hormones and potentially there may be effects on bone or other things. I think, um, you know, people love to talk about these, you know, different primitive cultures where they, where people eat this way. I think at the Inuits in, uh, in Alaska, right, they eat almost all fat. Uh, and of course, babies are born on a ketogenic diet. In fact, I'm told that the sort of breath that somebody gets that acetone on their breath when you're on the ketogenic diet reminds people of baby's breath. My wife doesn't agree with that. She, she doesn't think my breath smells like a baby's breath, but, <laughs> but of course babies are, are born, you know, into, right. a, into a very high fat diet. Um, and so they're, they're in nutritional ketosis is the you know term we use when they're born through the time that they're on breast milk. Fascinating. But that's uh, Ethan. That was a great conversation. We're gonna let you go. Wrap it up here. Yeah. Um, for people you know who don't already follow you on Twitter, your your Twitter handle is uh, again super uh, creative. Ethan J Weiss. Ethan J Weiss. We'll have that on the show notes. Your your company is Keto. It's already uh, it's available uh, for for purchase. Or well, it's sort of available. Too? It's it's okay. pre-available. pre-available. Um, It's, uh, yeah. And in at the, uh, keto.com or? It's get keto. Get keto. Yeah. K-E-Y-T-O, get keto.com. Get keto.com, yeah. You're at, on the UCSF website, uh, yeah. in the news frequently, and uh, it's great having you. And, and I'm sure we'll, we'll, you know, have a chance to, to talk about this or something else with you. Uh, well, at some point we have to talk about our, our experiences, fellas, but we can do that over dinner. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. All right, Ethan. Take care. Yeah. Thanks again. Super fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. Akkadandcoca.com.